You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael McFall. I'm the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. I'm also a professor here of political science and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, it is a great uh, honor for me to be here and say exactly 27 seconds of introductions before I hand it over to Jonathan. And by the time we get done with the introductions, maybe uh, Professor Krasner will have shown up uh, for when I say some nice things about him. But um, uh, it is hard, I can tell you, as somebody who runs an international uh, studies center, where, you know, we have lots of scholars. I think we have 400 people all together. Um, it's hard to do two things. One, to do collaboration on really big topics uh, on anything, because people are busy, people got their own work, uh, and the value added of, of joining up some other project always has to be weighed against the opportunity costs of your own individual projects. And then the second thing that I think is even harder is to compel academics or to create incentives, that's a better word. Here comes Steve. Uh, to compel or, or to create incentives for people to think about the policy implications of the academic work that they do. Uh, and that's exactly what this uh, terrific volume, two volume sequence, has tried to do. Uh, and I've thought about, well, what are the necessary ingredients? And maybe our, our professors will talk about that in a minute. But I think there's two necessary ingredients. One is to have a world-class theorist on international relations uh, walking into the room right now. Uh, uh, actually taught me introduction to international relations fall quarter of my freshman year here at Stanford. Um, who is also interested in policy and who has worked in policy. And of course, that's Professor Krasner, who worked in the Bush administration, first at the White House and then uh, at the policy plan, directed the policy planning uh, in the second term. And then you need a general uh, who gets things done. Uh, and that's why we're delighted that we actually have general ambassador and also professor of the practice, Carl Eikenberry, as the co-editor of this volume. So I think if you don't have those two ingredients, a general and a world-class scholar, you shouldn't undertake such ambitious projects. And we're really lucky that we had the both of them. And we're really lucky that they collaborated with the uh, uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences to do that. And with us today is the president, uh, Jonathan Fenton, to say a few words too. Thank you all for coming. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate the uh, introduction. appreciate having you here. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful to the Freeman Spogli Institute for co-hosting this event. And I'm pleased to see the level of interest and enthusiasm uh, that this uh, project has garnered uh, and generated among scholars, uh, policymakers, practitioners, students, uh, and the public at large. So welcome to all. Uh, and I'd also like to add my thanks to uh, Carl Eikenberry and uh, Stephen Krasner for providing the leadership that has uh, brought this project on civil wars, violence, and international responses uh, to fr uh, fruition. We're proud to have a, member, uh, a number of Stanford professors involved in the project and with us tonight, 
and many of whom are also FSI uh, fellows. So there is a real uh, blending of, of, of interest uh, and uh, common purpose uh, uh, between our two institutions. Before I give the floor to Ambassador Eikenberry, let me provide a little background on the Academy. 62 scholar patriots, as we call them, uh, John Adams, John Hancock, James Bowden among them, uh, founded the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1780. As stated in our charter, the Academy's purpose is to cultivate every art and science which may tend to advance the interest, honor, dignity, and happiness of a free, independent, and virtuous people. So in the middle of the revolution, not just an honorary society, but a group of people who came together to make a difference. Uh, global security has been central to the American Academy's work over the years. In the 1960s, the Academy study on the debate about arms control helped devise the concept of strategic stability, which later became the linchpin of U.S.-Soviet Union policy. And since then, the Academy has addressed topical issues, including missile defense systems, conflicts in the Middle East, humanitarian intervention, and the responsibility to protect. The complexity of these issues requires that we go beyond the disciplines of history and political science and international relations and also draw on the wisdom and experience of those who've had policy and frontline experience, um, and uh, both members and uh, experts from outside the academy. And from the beginning, the academy has not just been scholars. It has been a broad range of people from uh, all walks of life. The academy is not new to the study of civil wars and fragile states. In 1990s, uh, we uh, published an issue of Daedalus led by Carl Kazin and Professor Thomas Homer Dixon that explored uh, the international norms for humanitarian intervention and resource scarcity uh, uh, driven conflicts. And then um, more recently, uh, the Academy's Committee on International Security Studies, known as CIS, began addressing uh, issues that will become critical for global peace and security in the 21st century and explored how the Academy uh, can play and should play uh, a role in uh, fresh thinking about those problems and possible solutions. The process identified uh, three issues that the committee thought um, deserved uh, the Academy's uh, study. The first is the development of new technologies and the ethical and moral questions that the deployment of these technologies uh, are raising. Uh, last year, the Academy launched a study led by Professor Scott Sagan, uh, right here with us, um, that addressed uh, consequential questions like how will a soldier in the 21st century fight? What ethical framework will inform wars uh, fought by drones and cyber weapons? How will states apply the principle of proportionality and distinction in such wars? And how do we address the true cost of war and the conflict uh, of war on civilian populations uh, over time? Uh, the study uh, group included Professor Michael Walzer, author of Just and Unjust Wars, Lloyd Axworthy, the former foreign minister of Canada, um, and Admiral Joe Ellis and General Mark Martins, both of whom have had direct experience in battle. And uh, that project produced a double issue of Daedalus uh, that uh, if you haven't read it, I, I urge you to. It really is uh, really so well done. Uh, and attracting a lot of attention. We've been giving briefings to the UN in both New York and Geneva, and a number of universities <laughs> have uh, adopted articles from that uh, uh, issue um, in their uh, college curricula. The second issue of significance is, um, comes from the changes and challenges uh, to the global nuclear order. 
technological changes coupled with worrisome uh, modifications in the nuclear posture of nuclear weapon states and the interwoven structure of alliances between nuclear weapons and non-nuclear weapon states make the global nuclear order increasingly unstable. Uh, it's a new world. And while strategic stability uh, has kept us uh, out of uh, a catastrophe uh, all these years, uh, uh, it's worn thin, it's old, it's out of date. And so the Academy has put together a uh, new project chaired by Robert Legvold and Chris Treiba that will begin to uh, meet and uh, try to uh, fashion a new framework uh, for uh, understanding the new nuclear age. And finally, the third of the uh, issues uh, is the uh, increasing number of fragile states and civil wars. Uh, this is the third issue our committee uh, identified for uh, uh, focus by the Academy. And um, the CIS group asked, is there anything new about contemporary civil wars? And if so, uh, what is it? And how will it affect global security? The project that uh, Ambassador Eikenberry and Professor uh, Krasner have taken on um, is an interdisciplinary uh, project, uh, as you'll see, as you hear from our uh, our authors, and one that is trying to look at the issue not through an American-centric lens, but in uh, international perspective. And I'll let Carl say more about it. But think of these three projects, uh, these three, three studies, as uh, interrelated and, uh, and a whole uh, piece of work by the Academy. So let me close with a quote from uh, Jean uh, Foresteia, uh, an Academy fellow who in 1966 wrote in a Daedalus volume on the uh, conditions of world order the following. And I quote, disorder and violence have been common to mankind for so many millennia that they form a part of our psychological foundations. They may indeed represent the extension into human thought and action of biological tensions organically linked to the evolution of life. Just as I believe that through information, conscience, and will, uh, through the spirit of experimental science, man can progressively discipline his impulsive reflexes, <coughs> regulate these, and thereby reduce savage and moral conflicts. So I believe that this will come about only with the patient accumulation of knowledge that remains virtually non-existent. And so these words really reflect the core mission of the Academy, the patient accumulation of knowledge, and the patient commitment to connect scholarship uh, to policy. And no better example of that, I think, than the uh, uh, project we're about to talk about. So uh, let me invite uh, Ambassador Eikenberry to uh, uh, take the floor. He's director of the U.S. Asia Security Initiative at FSI, an Academy Fellow, and uh, a dear friend. Carl? Thanks. Well, Mike, thanks for those uh, kind words and introduction for our project. And Jonathan, thank you. And uh, thank all of you for coming. Gilberto, great to, uh, great to see you here. Let me uh, start with just a, a, some background on the project, which I think will give you context then for the uh, discussion to uh, follow. So it, in essence, this is a project about understanding civil wars and uh, their implication for international security and foreign policy. Uh, this project really developed, uh, the inspiration was uh, three tours of duty in Afghanistan, fighting a very difficult uh, civil war there. Uh, uh, 
heroic efforts being made by uh, many to include the Afghans, the Americans, the international community trying to help stabilize the uh, country. And as I reflected on all of that as a fellow at the academy then in 2012, having left Afghanistan in 2011, in the margins of a, another meeting that was going on, I started to talk about uh, with several fellows about a, this idea about building a project on civil wars. Great support from the American Academy. We had an exploratory meeting in, uh, at Stanford right here in 2015, and we decided as a result with many of my colleagues participating in that meeting, let's go ahead and proceed. Then working with uh, Francesca uh, Giovannini, formerly with the CSAC, still with CSAC as an affiliate, and uh, now uh, at the American Academy as the program director for global security and international affairs, we decided to proceed and we were going to focus on three questions. The first is, and Jim Perron will go into this uh, shortly, what's the state of the state, so to speak? Uh, what's been the trends in civil wars and interstate violence, especially since the end of the Cold War? Question number two, what threats to the United States and the world emanate from states that are afflicted by civil war in the contemporary era, and we specifically wanted to focus on several of these threats. International terrorism, pandemics, which Michelle Berry and Paul Weiss will talk about in a moment, refugees, criminality, regional instability, and major power conflict, and of course, these are interrelated. And then third, what policy options are available to our country, and in particular, to our partners and major powers and regional leaders in dealing with interstate violence. So I, I had to make a, a quick decision on who would be a co-director, and uh, the obvious co-director uh, already introduced uh, Steve Krasner. As uh, I was waiting uh, with uh, Steve, or with the seat to be uh, occupied with Steve looking at my watch, uh, drawing upon uh, Mike McFall's metaphor. So uh, yes, I'm the person that can make the trains run on time, but I don't understand how trains work, and that's what Steve Krasner does. Uh, so uh, a great, uh, uh, I was really gratified though when uh, Steve did uh, join his co-director. He brings such intellectual horsepower and rigor to a topic which he himself has been uh, looking at uh, carefully over uh, several decades now. So uh, before proceeding then with the project, three requests that I had for Jonathan Fanton. The first was uh, to allow me to invite a lot of Stanford uh, colleagues from FSI to join this project, not because they were from uh, FSI because their leaders in their field of research recognized across the uh, policy world. So uh, we have seven of eight here today. Uh, number eight, Martha Crenshaw, expert in international terrorism, could not be here. She is somewhere on the Mekong River right now with the Stanford Travel Study Group, and she is thankfully out of tweeting range. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we have here, representing uh, from Mike McFall's FSI, then, what do we have? We've got uh, almost all of his centers represented. The Center for International Security and Cooperation, Center for Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law. In fact, the head of that, Frank uh, Fukuyama. Asia-Pacific Research Center, the Europe Center, and Stanford uh, Health Policy. And I think that it really does say something about FSI that of 36 world-class U.S. and international authors and co-authors that we recruited, and we've got the very best, eight of the 36 come from FSI. So Jonathan agreed to that. 
Uh, the second request is that we could draw uh, upon renowned international authors, academics, policy practitioners to join our project. And that would include Europe, Colombia, Ethiopia, and uh, let's see, yeah, several from Europe, Ethiopia, and uh, Colombia, and Canada. That's right, yeah, Lise Doucette from uh, BBC World. So Jonathan, uh, he had agreed to that too because that's consistent with Jonathan's vision of trying to connect the American Academy to other places around the world. And then third, uh, we ask that beyond this project leading to the publication of two volumes or two editions of Daedalus, you've got number one that just came out. Second one will be out in the winter of 2008, in January of 2008. We ask that over the next 18 to 24 months, we conduct a set of outreach activities uh, here in the United States and around the world. And then drawing upon the results of that engagement, Steve Krasner and I, with help from colleagues, will be publishing uh, an occasional paper uh, under the Academy's aegis, and uh, that will be very policy relevant. Uh, so we've begun the outreach. Last month, uh, several participants in our project, and uh, three here on the uh, panel, went to New York City and had a wonderful set of dialogues with the United Nations at senior and staff level. We've got a visit to Nigeria next, week, uh, next month that uh, Paul Weiss and I will make. Additional meetings uh, throughout the fall with the United Nations. We've got a meeting next January at uh, USIP, the United States Institute for Peace. Uh, and that will be a great opportunity for engagement with legislative and executive branches. And then uh, trips, we hope, uh, to Sri Lanka, Colombia, Balkans, and uh, Ethiopia. So again, Jonathan, thanks for your support on that. I also wanted to very briefly mention uh, two colleagues, one of who is here, Scott Sagan, uh, already referred to by Jonathan. David Kennedy, a good, uh, good colleague and friend, uh, he led a Daedalus, uh, he led an academy effort on the modern American military several years ago and uh, led to the publication of a volume of Daedalus. Scott Sagan, Ethics, Technology, and War project, more recent, leading to the uh, publication of two volumes of Daedalus and a very active outreach program. I wanted to call both of them out because Steve and I really benefited, Scott and uh, David, from your work and from some of the insights and business uh, practices that you established. So a project of this nature, uh, it doesn't lead to a consensus view among 36 uh, participants. Instead, we aimed by inviting the very best in academe, the policy community, and the media to participate in this project, and then to identify the range of thinking involving threats obtaining from civil wars in the contemporary world, and the range of policy options available in treating interstate violence. So we did identify some common ground, and Steve and I, both in our introduction in the volume that uh, has just been published, and then the concluding essay for volume two that will be published in January of next year, uh, we did offer some of our thoughts, and in certain areas I think we do find common ground with most of the authors. But rather than myself or Steve to insert really a lot of our own thoughts broadly, I think it's uh, much better to let today's panelists, all from F Stanford FSI, 
uh, and representing seven of the authors and co-authors of these two issues of Daedalus devoted to our project present their own views. So what I'm going to do is sit down and I'm going to start with uh, asking a round of questions to our panelists and then we'll open the uh, floor for question and answer. So while I'm still here, I'll uh, go ahead and get this started. So. First round for Jim Farron and Steve Stedman. Uh, first brief introductions. Jim's a senior fellow at FSI and a professor in the School of Arts and Humanities and a professor of political science and affiliated with the faculties of CSAC and CDDRL. And Steve, Steve Stedman, senior fellow also at FSI, professor by courtesy political science, deputy director at the Center on Democracy Development and Rule of Law under Frank Fukuyama and affiliated faculty at FSI's CSAC. So the questions are, Jim, you really, uh, you really set the foundation for this project and our study with uh, an excellent essay, but drawing upon work that, uh, that you've done over the years about uh, looking at the question of the main trends in how civil wars arise and how they end. And you've looked at this both through the prism of the Cold War and then at the end of the Cold War and trends that started of late in the uh, 21st century. And then primarily for Steve, Steve, uh, you've written a lot and you've written uh, two essays co-authored in this and uh, the next edition of Daedalus about the question of the so-called standard treatment regime. And uh, I'd like, if you could, to define what you mean by the standard treatment regime. And I think that many in this audience, to include myself when I began this uh, project, found it surprising over time the degree of success that the United Nations has actually had in treating civil wars. Not in every case, but in, uh, in certain important instances. And what are the challenges this regime faces going forward? So Jim, if we could start with you. Sure. Just on? I don't know. Okay, good. So thanks very much, Carl. And um, thanks, thanks to Carl and Steve and to Jonathan uh, Fanton and AAAS for, for organizing this. It's been a great project. Um, so, so I wrote a, uh, a, a chapter that's kind of an overview chapter in terms of patterns and trends. And I'll, I'll, there's, some other, there's other stuff in the, in the piece, but I'll, that's what I'll focus on. And Carl, give me a nasty look when I'm going too long. Um, so, uh, so okay. So, so what are the what are the big patterns and trends concerning civil war uh, in recent years? And um, I'm going to go back. Well, let's start right after World War II. So, uh, since since if you if you plot number of countries with an ongoing civil war from 1946 to the present, what do you see? Uh, you see a gradual but quite striking and quite steady increase right from, from essentially virtually nothing going on right after World War II, which kind of cleared the decks, to a high point in the early 90s, uh, uh, at, at which point, you know, and there, there, you know the, the picture here depends a little bit on definitions, but basically various different effort, dif under various different definitions, you see basically the, the same pattern. Using, uh, you know, my data, you get to a high point of about 48 uh, civil wars ongoing in the early 1990s. Um, that's remarkable prevalence. That's about one third of all non-microstates. So that's about you know 165 countries that aren't you know the size you could fit in the Stanford Stadium. Um, 
uh, you know, that's actually literally true in some, in some cases of some Pacific Island states that are UN members. Um, anyway, uh, one third of all kind of non-tiny states uh, had a civil war ongoing right after the end of the Cold War. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the interest in civil war comes from thinking, oh, the Cold War ended and boom, we had all this civil war. Actually, it was the result, there was a spike right after the end of the Cold War, but it was really, the global prevalence was really due to a much longer run, steady buildup. Now, and then another interesting th fact is that since the early 90s, there's actually been a, a, a pretty significant decline uh, down to levels, so it declined uh, after around 93, 94, uh, to levels that have varied between 26 and 32 ongoing wars since around 2000, which is between one in five and or one in six uh, non-microstates. Um, now, in the last couple of years, since around 2011, uh, or just a little before, we've seen uh, something of an uptick again, which is related to, uh, uh, really, it's related to the, um, mainly to wars in the Middle East and North Africa related to the Arab Spring. Now, what, what happens, that's a global picture. What happens if you look region by region? Uh, well, with one exception, uh, you see the same overall pattern. So there's two regions where most of the conflicts in this period have been, that's Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. You see the same picture, gradual increase up to the early 90s and then a decline. Uh, you see the same thing in Latin America, although at lower levels. Um, uh, also in a way in Eastern Europe as well, although it's, it's basically flat during the Soviet period. The one region where you don't see this pattern uh, in quite the same way is Middle East, North Africa. And there you see the same increase up to the early 90s and the beginnings of a decline, but then the, diff the, you know, the, the one difference is that starting around 2000, 2001, or 2003, that's the one region that has seen a large increase in the proportion of countries uh, with, a, with a civil war ongoing. Okay, what about types of civil wars? Has that changed over time? Not a whole lot in, 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 in some key features. So uh, in the field of people who work on civil war, we make a couple kind of standard distinctions. One is between wars where the rebels are trying to capture the central government, like say in Syria, uh, versus separatist or autonomy-seeking civil wars if there is a war in Catalonia, which is, I, I pray and think unlikely it would be a separatist war. So those are the two, two kinds. Those have been fairly constant in terms of uh, proportions over time, varying between 50 and 60% uh, center-seeking wars and the rest uh, autonomy-seeking. Another distinction we often make is between ethnic and ideological wars, which is a little bit trickier, but uh, there you've seen some increase over time in the proportion that or would be plausibly coded as, as ethnic rather than ideological, but it's not, uh, it's not huge. There is uh, one quite striking change in types of civil wars uh, that have occurred since World War II and, and recently, you know, since 1990 really, um, a huge increase in the proportion of civil wars in which one or more rebel groups are avowedly jihadis. So uh, the wars that have a jihadist element, or they, you know, I'm not saying anything about what their actual motivations are. I think they often have a lot to do with local uh, conditions, but in terms of what they say they're doing, uh, avowed jihadi groups uh, have, have increased enormously from bumping around between 0 and 5 percent uh, up to around 1990, increasing a good bit in the 1990s and then increasing at a, a somewhat higher rate uh, after 2000, up to the point where it's around 45 percent, uh, 40, 40 to 45 percent uh, today. Obviously, this is related to uh, you know, the spread or, or, or increased civil war in Middle East, North Africa. 
but there's also you know, some input here in Southeast Asia and, and West Africa. Um, so, uh, so one question, uh, why the uh, first question, why this gradual increase from 1946 to the early 90s? You might think, looking at the, the picture, you'd think, well, it must be that civil wars are breaking out more and more frequently. Actually, that's not the case. They have broken out at about, over the whole period, at a fairly constant rate of about a little more than two per year. Uh, and that's bounced around a lot, of course, year to year, but there isn't any very particularly strong trend. Uh, they've ended at, uh, also at a fairly constant rate with, with you know, fluctuation uh, year to year uh, of about 1.7 or 1.8 per year. So you've had a persistently higher rate at which they've broken out versus which they've ended, which has contributed, or that's kind of in, in a large part behind this uh, steady increase over the whole period and an explanation for why we have so, uh, such high prevalence even today of uh, states with ongoing civil wars. It also means or is, is uh, part of the reason behind if you look at civil wars, um, another feature is that uh, if you look at the average length of time that wars have been in progress year by year, that's gone up enormously. So that if you randomly picked a civil war happening today, it's it's been it's the median duration of those is like around 15 years. Average might be around 20. So you have a whole lot of countries uh, with very long running, hard to resolve um, conflicts. Um, I think I won't go into like what explains this, uh, uh, why civil wars in this period have been so hard to end. I mean, the basic picture has to do with, uh, you know, uh, a change in international system from 50, 65 countries, independent countries right after World War II to a system with 193 UN member states, you know, which were as a result of several waves of decolonization, which brought into an international system many quite weak states that were never very administratively, bureaucratically, militarily developed by the colonial powers. Um, uh, but I'll put that to the side and, and conclude with, with uh, a couple comments on why the decline since 1993. Steve is gonna talk about this more, but there's a fair bit of academic research, and which I think is, is, is relatively good for a hard problem, uh, the kind of hard problems these are that suggest that on net, UN and other regional organization peacekeeping operations in the 1990s probably contributed substantially to the decline in prevalence that we saw uh, from the early 1990s. Um, uh, research suggests you know, reasonable evidence that peace duration in a conflict that had a peacekeeping operation intervention is significantly greater than a war that terminates without uh, a peacekeeping operation, other things equal, and if anything, the peacekeeping operations are, are being sent to the harder cases, not the easy cases. Um, but, and I'll, I'll, I'll end here, when my, my paper talks about developments, in, two developments in the last 15 years uh, that I think are really major problems for what I talk about in the paper as the PKO plus treatment regime, which means peacekeeping operations plus post-conflict aid plus non-governmental organizations plus international justice regime, uh, a whole bunch of things that have been developed uh, as kind of a regime for international um, post-conflict and civil, for treatment of civil war in the international system. Um, First, current conditions in Middle East, North Africa do not favor the use or success of this uh, peacekeeping plus treatment model. Um, but this is where arguably the biggest threats to international peace and security related to civil war and state failure are now. 
um, the reasons why it, this region is kind of inhospitable to the uh, treatment regime that was quite su successful in many ways in Latin America, Central America, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, Eastern Europe in, in places, is that the region is characterized by some intense regional uh, rivalries and conflicts between you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia, India, Pakistan, which has uh, the first one playing into a Sunni-Shia schism uh, and a, a religious identity politics, which are quite intense, um, creates problems, for example, for who can send peacekeepers, uh, what will their religion be. Um, uh, transnational jihadi movements have, have in this region make for much increased costs and risks for peacekeeping troops and, and states that's, that uh, you know, send, uh, send and finance uh, missions. Um, you know, the one aspect of j these jihadi movements is that they're in part nationalist movements who have you know, a key part of their thing is foreigners out, uh, like nationalist movements uh, in general. So, um, you know, foreign troops are like uh, catnip uh, in terms of attracting uh, jihadi um, recruiting and interest. Um, and then finally, return of uh, U.S.-Russia conflict uh, means it's harder to get agreement on the U.N. Security Council. Last thing, I okay, you're giving me the look. So um, uh, the second problem is that in countries with dysfunctional states, uh, we've seen since the 1990s, although it has a considerable su successes, it's unable, has, not, has been a kind of at best a Band-Aid in places where the state has really disintegrated. And so it can kind of keep things from being utterly horrible, but, but uh, the U UN troops, uh, US troops in Afghanistan can't leave without a significant risk of things kind of going back to hell. Uh, and this is a problem where, you know, third parties just don't know how to build Self, you know, third parties are, we, we just don't know how to build self-governing, self-financing states within kind of UN recognized borders or probably possibly any borders. It increasingly looks like durable political order can only be constructed by locals and that in some places this process is going to be bloody and slow, which is uh, unfortunate, but uh, very unfortunate, but uh, we, we don't have a good solution for that. So I'll stop there. <clears throat> Am I on here? So, so thanks, Jim. I, I feel like I'm presiding over a uh, high-quality uh, five-star intellectual buffet where each uh, each one of these authors could uh, could talk for 90 minutes and more about their own contributions and work. Um, so, uh, turning to Steve, uh, Steve, the the way the international community has uh, has looked at and addressed civil wars had a remarkable change upon the end of the Cold War. But it was interesting uh, with, uh, with some success being made with the development of policy and what you call the standard treatment regime, that in the 21st century with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we went through a period of time where there was great optimism that the United States with international partners, we could accomplish a lot uh, anything was possible in the world of uh, state building with enough uh, effort and smart policies. And that led to a reaction uh, when there was uh, a, a great amount of uh, despair with the failures that we had to lead for many in the policy community and the military to then just reject the very notion of state building at all. So I wonder if you could talk then, Steve, about your own experiences uh, defining the standard treatment regime and uh, your view is Afghanistan and Iraq, are they cautions to the international community to just stay away from uh, strengthening governance and state building altogether? 
this on? I think it is. Yeah, okay. Um, so um, Jim did a great job of telling you about sort of numbers of civil wars in the world and, and how prevalent they've been since 1945. Um, I'm going to actually flip it around to say um, what has been happening in terms of trying to deal with civil wars, to address civil wars. Um, because different international orders relate to civil wars very differently. During the Cold War, um, the typical model of, of superpower intervention in civil wars were patron-client relations where the superpowers uh, either wanted their own faction to win the civil war, but at least to prevent losing the civil war. And so there was much uh, engagement from international actors, um, but these were often escalatory engagements, um, very violent engagements, Although, as our old colleague Alex George always said, there was an enormous amount of incentive to make sure that in your patron-client relations with these, in these civil wars, you don't end up in a direct military confrontation with each other, right? Sea change at the end of the Cold War, an absolute sea change, um, where international actors all of a sudden start treating civil wars as if they are amenable to political social and military engineering. It's as if uh, everyone got together and resolutely said, we are not gonna give war a chance. Um, to give you a sense of this, when I started working on this back in the 1980s, um, it was very common in textbooks on war termination to simply say, everything that we're writing about interstate wars does not apply to civil wars. Civil wars are non-negotiable. They're non-negotiable because they're total wars in limited settings. Uh, and, and then people would move on. Now, it's, it's not as if mediation didn't happen in civil wars. You know, we, there, there were some mediation attempts in civil wars, but they tended to be regional organizations, often civil society organizations, church groups would try to get involved, but certainly not the superpowers and certainly not the Security Council. And all of a sudden, you have the end of the Cold War, and then all of a sudden, it's this huge spike in mediations of civil wars. Um, and because the first several of these were successful, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Cambodia, um, uh, so successful in terms of both the mediation and then the use of peacekeepers to implement the peace agreements, it became almost a knee-jerk reaction. Wherever you had civil war in the world, the first reaction out of the Security Council was, let's mediate. Got to get in there and mediate, right? Um, and so it's pretty dramatic in terms of uh, international order and how it's affected civil wars. And it has, it has contributed to this decline that, that, that Jim lays out. Um, but, but there's been a lot of problems with the model. First of all, I'm giving you a very clear story about you know, the fact that this has happened. But um, in terms of various treatments, um, we, we call the standard treatment mediation, peacekeeping, and peace building. Right, that's the standard treatment. But at the same time, there's been an enormous amount of experimental treatment where uh, the United States decides for humanitarian reasons it's going to get involved in a war in Somalia back in the 1990s, where you're going to put peacekeepers into the middle of war in Bosnia to do humanitarian protection. You're going to uh, use uh, peacekeepers to try to protect civilians. So there's been a lot of experimentation that is outside of what we call the standard treatment. Now, the standard treatment, mediation, peacekeeping, peacebuilding, is not controversial. It's accepted in almost every national capital and in, in, in New York. 
you know, uh, there's an agreement that that's an appropriate way to deal with a civil war. On the humanitarian side, any of these experiments in civilian protection or military intervention, uh, there's never been a consensus behind it, and so there are, it's always, always controversial and upsetting of international order. Um, now, in, in the essays that we have here, and I'll just end quickly, um, we talk about the health of this standard treatment. Um, and it's under a lot of pressure. It's under a lot of pressure from several sources. First, um, the Security Council itself um, has added a lot of different goals to the standard treatment. So that uh, in places like the Congo and places like Sudan, um, peacekeepers are told that you should be doing civilian protection and that's a good thing, civilian protection, but it's not a good thing when it's unmoored from any kind of diplomacy or politics, right? It's a, it's a recipe for keeping peacekeepers in a country like Eastern Congo for years, decades, without any discernible progress towards actually bringing a conflict to an end, okay? And, and the troop contributors themselves are saying, you know, this, this is not what we signed up for. We signed up for implementing a peace agreement. We signed up for the political use of military force. We didn't sign up for uh, permanent uh, assignments in terms of trying to protect civilians, okay? So the regime itself, the, 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 the treatment is under pressure, right? And it might not be sustainable. At the same time, you have the problem that, that Jim alludes to, which is it just could be that the wars of today, uh, especially those wars in the Middle East and North Africa, are simply not amenable to a treatment of mediation, negotiation, and peace building. Now, for me, that's, that's, it's an empirical question. Um, there's good reasons to think that uh, mediation is not gonna work. Mediation and peacekeeping is not gonna work. Um, but what I like to say is if you roll back to the early 1990s, many of the things that were said about some of these conflicts were said about some of the civil wars back then, that the various partners couldn't, various parties couldn't be brought into a deal, or the regional powers will not let it happen, right? But it, but it's, but it is possible. The second one has to do with the politics of the Security Council. Um, Soviet Union <laughs> and the United States during the Cold War, again, thinking about patron-client relations in civil wars. This is exactly what you are seeing now in Syria and in Yemen. You're seeing a rollback to a way of engaging in civil wars that was more appropriate of 30 to 35 years ago. The question is, is this going to be uh, exemplary of other civil wars, right? Is, is, is this how uh, the Russia and the United States is going to engage? Or are these just one-offs because of region? And then the second question is, um, will the souring of U.S.-Russia relations actually spill over so that conflicts that they might not care about in the Central African Republic, for example, they're going to deadlock just like the Security Council deadlocked during the Cold War and prevent the U.N. from trying to do the job and apply the standard treatment? Thanks. Thanks, Steve. So let's turn to uh, Frank Fugiyama and Steve Krasner. Uh, Steve, <clears throat> Frank is the uh, director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and uh, Rule of Law, Senior Fellow at FSI. And uh, Steve is a Senior Fellow at uh, FSI, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and Co-Director, as we know, for this uh, project. So for, for uh, both of you, 
early in this century, in the 21st century, as I had indicated earlier, some both in the U.S. and the international community believe the possibility of taking the fragile and failed states, war-torn states like in Iraq or in Afghanistan at the time, and that they could be put on the so-called path to Denmark. So what have, what have we learned then, Frank, over the past 15 years of engagement in peace and state building around the world? And what does history teach us about how nation states really do emerge? Thanks, Carl. So um, is that on? It is. Is it on now? Yeah, okay. So I actually don't know what we've learned in the last 15 years. I mean, I take it from Steve that we do have a standard treatment and that we kind of know the conditions under which we can um, uh, ameliorate these situations. But my uh, contribution to this effort was completely historical. Uh, and it actually leads to a rather pessimistic view about what's going to happen uh, to these conflicts over time. Uh, it all began uh, with um, this little observation about the history of England over the past millennium. So if you look at the period between the uh, Norman Conquest and the Glorious Revolution in uh, 1688, the English fought approximately one civil war every 50 years. Uh, if you watch Game of Thrones, it's roughly based on the Wars of Roses, and actually the real thing was more violent than on the TV series uh, and more prolonged. Uh, and so there are, you know, the English were acting like Somalis, basically, for the first 600 years of their history. And then after that point, they don't fight a single civil war up to the present, which is kind of an interesting, you know, question about why uh, so many uh, prior to that point and why so few uh, after. So the, the paper is, um, is really an exploration of why you got finally to stability and why did it take so long. Uh, there's a theoretical issue um, embedded in this, which is that there is a rational choice. So, <laughs> so Steve is always putting me in these boxes, so I'll put him in a box. So. <laughs> Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a rational choice school of political science that basically says that people follow uh, their incentives or their, their material interests and that the way you get to stability is if you have a conflict, uh, if it is stalemated and it's clear to the parties to the conflict that they cannot get their maximal goals, that they have to settle for their second best, that that's actually uh, what's going to produce a, a stable outcome. Uh, and they'll accept the second best um, in preference to the first best uh, because, you know, and that's what creates a kind of self-reinforcing uh, equilibrium. And, you know, my observation about English history was that this is not right, uh, that in fact um, there were repeated moments in which you had stalemated conflicts that led to temporary truces but the moment one of those parties got a little bit more powerful and thought that they could take home all the marbles, they immediately upset the, conf uh, the, the settlement and you're back to civil war. Probably the most uh, famous one is the Magna Carta itself. So if you remember evil King John uh, lost a war you know, in, uh, uh, in France and then uh, was discredited and he imposed ruinous taxes on his nobles. Uh, and they all uh, got together and forced on him uh, this document that limited his powers, and he agreed to it. 
well, you know how long that agreement, that particular settlement of the Civil War lasted? It lasted about a month. Uh, and then all of a sudden, King John figured he could wiggle out of it. He got the Pope to annul the Magna Carta, and then he started up the Civil War again. And so uh, that was a pattern that has recurred repeatedly uh, in English history up until the big Civil War in the 1640s that eventually resulted, you know, it was a very bloody struggle. They chopped off Charles I's head and, and had this period under Cromwell of the Protectorate, but finally it was stabilized um, after the Glorious Revolution. And my argument is that there are, it's not a question of the balance of interest that determines the stability. It's really normative uh, changes that took place uh, and there are really two that were important in the English case. The first was a rooting of a sense of law and the belief that loyalty to the law, living under the law, is more important than promoting you know, a short-term you know, interest on, uh, on your part. Uh, the common law in England really gets started after the Norman Conquest, property rights, all of this sort of thing uh, becomes very deeply entrenched. And by the time you get to the 17th century, if the Stuart monarchs set up a star chamber, basically extrajudicial attacks on their enemies, you've got an entire elite in, uh, in England that rises up and says, you can't do this. The king has to be under the law. The law itself is sacred. It's ancient. Uh, we are not going to let you upset you know, our understanding of the limits of your power. So that's one thing. The other thing was uh, <clears throat> the, the sense of a growth of both an English national identity and an English state. And that really doesn't occur until the Tudor period in the 16th century, uh, particularly under uh, Thomas uh, uh, Cromwell, uh, Henry VIII's great secretary who creates a bureaucratic system. And then after the, you know, the Spanish Armada and these fights against the Catholic powers on the continent, England as a separate Protestant country becomes a very fixed trope in the minds of, of Englishmen. Uh, and also that there's a state that, you know, a king becomes more of a figurehead, but there's a permanent bureaucracy. The country goes on even if the king is an idiot or, you know, disabled, you know, like the Hanover, uh, Hanoverian kings in the 18th century and so forth. And so it's a, you know, it's a combination of those two, but those are basically normative changes. Uh, that take place, that there is um, this thing called England to which we're loyal and not a particular king, and therefore I don't get my militia and try to grab uh, power in London. So I started the, the, uh, I started the, uh, uh, the article with this quote from Gordon Brown, the former uh, prime minister, that said, um, the, law, the rule of law is very hard to establish, especially in the first 500 years. And actually, he was being a little bit over-optimistic because it actually took 600 years in the case of his own uh, country. But the point is that you know, the embedding of normative rules, something like national identity, it could happen. You know, if elites in Iraq <coughs> spend a little bit of time working on that problem, they could lay the groundwork uh, for that, such that the Kurds would not want to form their own country or you know, the other parts of the, the society would not want to necessarily break away. Uh, but nobody's done that. Uh, and even if they did do it, it's not the work of a generation. It, it really takes a lot longer than that. And the respect for law is something that probably uh, is even more deeply embedded. What that means for peacekeepers is 
as I said, somewhat pessimistic because uh, the agreements that you can reach in the short run uh, may not be durable past these basic changes in the balance of power that led to the agreements in the first place, and therefore uh, you've got to expect that you know you need to invest in the normative stuff. That's something foreigners can't do. It's got to be done by domestic elites. Great. Thanks, Frank. I tried, uh, when I was ambassador in Afghanistan, I tried that uh, Gordon Brown 500 years with uh, Secretary of State Clinton, and she didn't buy it. So, <laughs> so Steve, um, <clears throat> you've, uh, you've uh, written at uh, length and uh, thought hard about this uh, challenge of uh, going into these countries uh, post-conflict or uh, still with uh, ongoing conflicts and trying to uh, stabilize and improve governance, build economies, establish uh, uh, accountable security forces. You use this uh, term, the limited opportunities model. Could you talk about your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I, I do want to say a couple of things first. I want to thank you and thank Jonathan for involving me in this project. Um, I do want to say something else about the project, too. You know, it's clear that the sweet spot for Stanford is somehow joining together people out of technical skills with people out of policy interests. We're very lucky in having Michelle and Paul engaged in this project. Um, it, it, it's very clear what has to happen. It's very hard to actually make it happen, and I do think it happened a little bit with this project. So basically, um, what I, I've tried to do in my own work, and Carl and I try to do in the conclusion, is to look at the opportunity, this third question that Carl raised in his introduction, which is, what are the opportunities for external state builders? So I would say not that many. Why? Because I think if you look at the theories of development which we've had um, in, in the West, I mean, there was modernization theory, which basically informed uh, the foreign assistance programs for the first 20 or 30 years, which basically assumed some kind of automaticity in development. You know, if we could just, we have technology and population change, if we could just give people adequate capital investment, we'd have development. Um, we have a set of arguments about institutional capacity associated with Hobbes, and, and more recently, I think, with Huntington. And finally, we have this last set of arguments, this rational choice set of arguments, which basically says, depends on the kinds of, of calculations which political elites were, were making. In my own kind of thinking about this, I do think that um, the rational choice perspective is the most persuasive one. Um, but regardless of which of these three um, arguments about modernization you actually adopt, external state building is really hard. Let's say a minimum requirement for external state building is that you get buy-in from a national political elite. Um, we have a few studies, um, uh, some of which have been done by people um, who worked in the Stanford department. You know, when, when countries are really up against the wall, um, when they're emerging from civil wars, when they don't have any raw materials, when external actors actually don't care very much about them so they can make credible threats to withdraw foreign assistance, you may actually get some change. But I think the possibility of getting long-term change is pretty dim because the incentive structure for most national elites is to stay in power. And you stay in power by having, you know, accumulating enough wealth and power to keep yourself, prevent your opponents from throwing you out. Um, and whether or not you want to look at, you know, regardless of the general theoretical perspective you're using, 
Um, if you take that as your basic orientation, it makes you pretty pessimistic about what we could actually accomplish. Even more pessimistic if you think it requires normative change, since that takes a long, long time, whereas material incentives you might be able to change um, more quickly. And it suggests that what we could hope for as external state builders is maybe some degree of security, maybe some provision of services, especially health, uh, which is an area which is the big success story in my, in my view in the post-war period. I mean, if you look at life expectancy, it's increased dramatically across the world. Maybe some level of economic growth, maybe, maybe some degree of toleration, um, but not more than that. And, and if you're, you won't be able to get more than that because more than that will put at risk the position of national elites. I mean, I think if you look in, at Europe, um, and this is where Frank and I would disagree, and you can pick up on this if you want. If you look at religious toleration in Europe, I think religious toleration is adopted in Europe not because any of the European rulers believed in it, but because the French, the Holy Roman Empire, the British, looked at the level of conflict that was being generated by disputes between Catholics and Protestants, and they basically said, holy crap, we can't deal with this stuff. Um, you know, we, and you end up with, the, the, with uh, religious wars in France, with the civil war in Britain, which ends up with the king getting his head cut off, with the 30 years war in the center of Europe, which kills two and a half million people. And they basically agree to constrain their own freedom of action because they see that they can't actually deal successfully uh, with the imposition of religious uniformity in Europe. Um, so basically, I think if you're looking at what ex external state builders can do, if you, regardless of the sort of theoretical perspective that you begin with, if you accept the fact that you can't get change without getting, and here we have no disagreement at all, without getting buy-in from national elites, you're and you recognize that most of these national elites aren't interested in doing the right thing for their population, they're interested in staying in power, the opportunities for external state builders are quite limited. Great, Steve. Um, so, turning now to, uh, and Steve uh, already introduced it, the world of uh, health. And we have with us uh, Michelle Berry and Paul Weiss. If I were to read all of their titles, we would run out of time very quickly. Uh, Michelle, Director of the Center for Innovation in Global Health and the Stanford uh, Health Policy Associate, uh, Senior Fellows at uh, FSI, Professor of Medicine and Tropical Diseases, and I could go on. And Paul, uh, the Richard E. Berman, Professor of Child Health and Society, a core faculty member of the Center for Health Policy and the Center for Primary Care and Outreach Research, and again, I could go on. So uh, the question for uh, Michelle and Paul, uh, in 2014, when the Ebola crisis uh, struck, uh, we know the countries that uh, were afflicted. Two of those three countries, uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone, uh, had very violent civil wars that uh, were raging in the 1990s, uh, weakened uh, the countries uh, significantly. But if you think about the Ebola crisis of 2014, what if it had been in the early 1990s when civil wars were raging uh, in those countries? What a problem that would have posed. It posed problems enough. So, but it seems uh, for both of you that this question of relationships between weak governance, fragile healthcare systems, pandemics is, is perhaps understudied. 
like to just open for both of you. Uh, what are your views on this, the threat, and what are the policy implications? Start with you, Michelle. Yep. Um, first, I want to thank you, Carl and Steve, for inviting me, and Paul for inviting me to think about this. Um, and I'll take the first part of that question and try to answer why really civil wars um, create, the create the perfect milieu for pandemics. Um, and the reason, and the emergence of infectious diseases. And the reason this occurs um, is basically, well, you have to step back and think about the ecology of pandemics. Basically, 70% of our emerging pathogens are what we call zoonoses. That means they come from animals. And it's only when humans come into very close contact with animals that you get this spillover this jump. We've seen this with HIV. We saw this with Ebola. Um, and so what is it about civil wars and, and fragile states that um, lets you have this spillover? And, and an, another part of the ecology that you need to know is many of these pathogens are located in subtropical or tropical areas. And those happen to be the areas um, where um, war occurs and pushes populations into the forest where they have extremely close contact um, with animals. And when you have this close contact with animals, just to give you an example, um, we have a huge epidemic now of yellow fever uh, occurring in, the, um, in Angola and the Demo Democratic Republic, Central Pu Republic of Africa. Um, again, close contact so that the monkey mosquito, what we call the sylvatic cycle, is disrupted. You got a human being right in the middle of it. So you wind up having this kind of pandemic generation. War also causes food insecurity. And when you have food insecurity, all of a sudden you're eating foods that you might not necessarily be eating, such as bushmeat. And we know that bushmeat was very much implicated in the Ebola epidemic. Um, and it's been um, actually implicated in HIV jump. You get water usage contamination. Your infrastructure gets um, really <laughs> completely disrupted. So you get waterborne diseases. And I don't know if anybody's following the absolute tragedy that's happening in Yemen right now, where um, 2,000 people have died of cholera and 300,000 people are infected. Um, I don't know if you recall that there's a polio epidemic happening now in Syria. Uh, because of the disruption of water infrastructure and the disruption of uh, vaccination and medical care that goes there. Um, you also get disruption of what we call sentinel sampling, and I think Paul will talk a little bit more about um, sentinel sampling, what I mean by that, and that's biosurveillance. Um, and it weakens, um, war weakens the very fragile health systems that are already there. Um, I, I, unfortunately, many of my colleagues have been killed um, in these um, war conflicts. Um, MSF, Medicine Sans Frontiers, had several um, medical personnel that have had direct, it, it, what happens is it becomes a, a political currency of the war. Medical personnel are sort of pulled into that. Um, so again, this becomes a milieu, uh, as you can see, for um, hot zones, hot spots, and pandemic. And I'm going to turn it over to Paul to talk about a little bit about the response and government response and biosurveillance. Thanks, Michelle, and thanks to Jonathan, Carl, and Steve. Um, it's very special to participate in an initiative 
that puts a general and a pediatrician on the same panel. <laughs> As Michelle mentioned, there are technical requirements for the surveillance and the response to any infectious outbreak with pandemic potential. Those technical requirements demand um, a technical infrastructure that's fairly sophisticated to identify and to respond to a potential outbreak. Clearly, in areas uh, plagued by civil war, this technical infrastructure almost never exists and almost always is completely inadequate. There's also a political context that operates as well, because when you think about what the response to potential pandemic outbreak is, it almost always requires the population to cooperate with public health best practices. For Ebola, it required isolation. And almost always, there will be a requirement for an outbreak like this to have the population comply with isolation, with quarantine. However, in systems, in political systems, in societies where the government has very little legitimacy, it loses informational authority. It loses the confidence of the people to respond to what otherwise would be public health best practices, but because it's associated with government action, that legitimacy that supports compliance, that demands cooperation, may not, in fact, be there. What you begin to see is a transformation take place, where governments without political legitimacy trying to control a pandemic outbreak they really have only one alternative to political legitimacy, and that's coercion. And what you see, what happened really overnight in West Africa, is that responsibility for the Ebola outbreak was transformed from the Ministry of Health to the Army. And it was a catastrophic failure because the ability of the Army to impose through coercion the requirements of public health practice uh, was also uh, inadequate. Therefore, in areas wracked by civil war, weak governance, and weak political legitimacy, we have a fundamental problem that the mechanisms of public health to control pandemics may, in fact, not exist. There are also questions about um, homeland security, that pandemic outbreaks um, can generate, we saw this with Ebola, that there are very few things that will generate fear in domestic politics uh, more than a potential pandemic, particularly one for which we have no cure or immunization. And there is an impulse because of Homeland Security responses to intervene, to intervene with security forces in areas that do not appear to have the ability to, or the political legitimacy to control the pandemic in those areas. And we saw the 101st Airborne be the leading edge uh, with the Centers for Disease Control of the American response to the West African Ebola outbreak. However, what happens if the outbreak is in Myanmar, Southeast Asia, 200 miles from the Chinese border? 
the implications for regional power relationships and for global security um, could be um, complex at, at best. Um, simply put, the global health governance regime that we have in place is extremely weak in dealing with areas of political instability and conflict. The global security governance infrastructure is particularly weak in dealing with infectious outbreaks. The convergence of these two weak spots is potentially catastrophic. And more broadly, it raises profound questions about the impact of war and political instability on civilian populations, not only in the region, but worldwide. We must consider more profoundly, we must get a better understanding of, and also better capability respond to these long-term indirect effects of war, which are likely to play out in pandemics and more broadly in some of the poorest and most violent places on Earth. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you, Michelle. And thank you, Paul. Uh, again, open it up for uh, questions. I've got one very brief question that I'd like to uh, ask uh, Steve uh, Stedman. So Steve, uh, you last month with Jim Farron and with Steve Krasner were in New York City, had some good meetings with the senior United Nations leadership. And uh, you've got a deep, uh, a lot of experience with the United Nations yourself. So as we talk about uh, the future of the standard treatment regime, your sense leaving New York City and those dialogues about the capacity of the United Nations to deal with this array of problems that uh, Jim Farron was talking about. Yeah, I, th I, th I, th I don't think you should be optimistic. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that uh, the United Nations is its member states, and if the member states decide that they're going to invest and they're going to give direction to the, to the UN Secretariat in terms of mediation and peacekeeping, they'll go out and try to do their job. I think they're frustrated right now because, first of all, a lack of discipline on the Security Council so that whenever you come up with a mandate for mediation and peacekeeping, it's got 47 different things, and it's not just end the war, but it's end the war, have an election, do human rights, do justice, do everything, right? And their point back is, show us some discipline and tell us what's important, because we can't do it all. Um, and the second thing is that they're really worried about uh, great power politics, and in particular, how the politics between Russia uh, China and the United States is going to play out in terms of the willingness of the great powers to even allow kind of, you know, the application of the standard treatment outside of the Middle East and North Africa. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say one thing, you know, it's too easy in, in meetings like this to think that everything's sort of obvious. This point about pandemics is not obvious. I just got back from a, a couple of weeks ago from a meeting in Virginia with one of Jim's colleagues. Um, this is kind of the major US government effort to deal with fragile states. Pandemics was not mentioned once. So there's a kind of standard list which people look at. Pandemics is not on that list. So that you know, is really great. I mean, that we could engage you. But without that, I mean, this, you know, people, this is something where you, you could actually pay attention. You can see that it could be really costly. 
And you could even think about some policy options that might be feasible, but it's been an issue which I think has pretty much been ignored. This, this connection that Paul and Michelle pointed to between pandemics and, and weak governance structures is not something that people have paid a lot of attention to. Thanks, Steve. Let's so we're going to open up a question. We have microphones, so if you'd raise your uh, hand and wait for the microphone, if you would identify, if you'd uh, give your name and uh, your affiliation, uh, and let's start right here with Bellarmine. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Rahul Kish. I'm a, a junior at Bellarmine College Prep. It's a high school in San Jose. Um, this is a question for Mr. Krasner and Mr. Fukuyama, respectively. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about the titles, but uh, you both have disagreements on what solves uh, civil wars and these regional conflicts. What, how much impact and what is the impact that different cultures in the world, whether that be in Europe, the Muslim world, Africa, East Asia, South Asia, this goes on in terms of how they feel, what is a state, how it should be organized, what, what, should, what is the rule of law supposed to be like, how does that impact how to solve civil wars and regional conflicts? Great question. Uh, Frank, do you want to start? Uh, I'm not sure the difference uh, is cultural just so much as a matter of historical experience. Uh, one big advantage that much of East Asia has over the rest of the world is that they actually had coherent states from way before the Europeans ever got there. You know, China, in fact, was one of the earliest countries to actually establish uh, a reasonably modern state. On the other hand, uh, for I think various you know, climactic and geographical reasons, Sub-Saharan Africa, at the time of European colonization, only about half of it had a state-level you know, political institution. And so, um, the colonial governments didn't give it to them, and they had to create you know, those in the present. Uh, whereas in East Asia, you just didn't have to worry about that. So I do think that those kinds of differences do matter. Steve? Yeah, I mean, I think a starting point, Bellarmine. So fitness and health, I see you have on your T-shirt. I know from my kids. I mean, Bellarmine has some very good <laughs> athletic programs. Um, so... You know, I think at least the starting point ought to be to recognize that the number of countries that have made it into the OECD world that are democratic and relatively wealthy is small, maybe 32. Um, the other, you know, 190 plus countries in the world, I mean, are for one reason or not or other not there. And even countries that look like they're transitioning that are pretty wealthy, like Brazil now, which has had this major corruption scandal. So on the one hand, it was very shocking, the level of corruption. On the other hand, it was amazing to me that people in the Brazilian government were actually able to go after Lula, who's the most popular uh, politician in the country. Uh, you know, could you really predict in 10 years where, where things will turn out? So I think it's very, you know, peculiar set of circumstances that allows wealthy democratic states to develop. And we should not assume that it's a natural order of things. The natural order of things is that you take care of your brothers, your sisters, and your cousins, and not that you necessarily have a set of policies that benefit the society as a whole. Thanks, Steve. We have about, just to, so everyone keeping pace here, we've got about 15 minutes uh, left. And um, gentlemen in the uh, back there. 
Okay. Yeah, hi. Please. My name is James Jury. I'm with the Schiller Institute and Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, and what I wanted to ask is, look, isn't it the case that all of the problems that have been discussed tonight are a consequence of British Empire geopolitics and the fact that the United States did not go forward with Franklin Roosevelt's approach after the war of simply developing the third world and ending colonialism forever? I think that's, that's really critical. Now, China, China is building up the world. And although it's blacked out in the United States, the truth is that China is soon going to be the leading economy in the world. Now, President Trump will be leaving in less than two weeks for a 10-day trip to China. Two, day, two of those days will be uh, in China with uh, his very close friend, uh, President Xi Jinping. If he brings the U.S. into alignment with China's New Silk Road policy, it can easily change history for the next 100 years. And what I would like to ask each of you is this. Leading Chinese spokesmen are now referring to U.S. policy and, of course, British policy as like a frog in a well. They're saying that you're like a frog caught in a well. You can't get out of the well. That's my question to you. <clears throat> well, I see everyone is uh, racing for their uh, microphone here. Frank, do you want to? Uh, well, look, I uh, uh, have a lot of reasons for doubting that this Belt and Road policy of China is going to be a lot more successful than a lot of earlier European attempts at colonialism. Uh, everything was not uniquely due to Britain, uh, so I think we'll just, uh, you know, I, I don't think things are going to uh, be transformed that much, really, by the rise of China, uh, at least not externally. Yeah, if you'd like to afterwards, if you'd like to talk about One Belt, One Road, I'd be, I, I'd be happy to. Michelle? I, I, I can just make a comment because I work a lot in sub-Saharan Africa. The Chinese are colonizing sub-Saharan Africa, and they're not doing it much better than the Brits. In fact, they're doing it much worse than the Brits because they're not building the infrastructure that the Brits did. Why don't we, uh, why don't we well, move on here yeah. in the interest of giving more people time to uh, talk. Scott, did you, uh, did you have a question? My question is not about the frogs in the well, but it is for you, Carl. Um, generals not only run good studies and study groups, they implement national policy about how to deal with civil wars or ongoing wars. Can you put on your military hat, not your ambassador's hat, and say a little bit about how the U.S. military is responding to some of the insights that this group is generating are they going to be running from this problem since it's been so painful for them uh, in recent years, or will they be embracing some of these insights uh, as, as complex as they are from your group? Yeah, I, that's a great question, Scott. So uh, going back to the, uh, the wars of uh, this, the big wars of this century for the United States, Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I think that across the board, uh, military uh, diplomats, uh, uh, development officials in USAID, they had a they had a, a overly optimistic, overly ambitious view of what could uh, could be achieved, and the military was part of that as uh, part of that equation as well. Uh, our military, our government, really never organized themselves to uh, make a serious attempt. If you were to uh, work hard at the state building, I'd remain skeptical even with reorganization. But the notion that 
you could put uh, soldiers into a country for nine months uh, for a year. Uh, they would rotate out. Uh, a new team would come in, uh, relearning the mistakes made by the first group. Uh, and as the first group started to get confident by about the 10th or 11th month point, it was time to go home. These were all relationships that we knew had to be built. Uh, it, it gets to what Steve Krasner was talking about, credible commitments, just uh, lack of knowledge. Uh, I think that uh, where all that ended for the United States uh, military, and I'm certain within the Department of State, is much more realism. Now, I think what our military is shifting to is the idea that if you have countries in which the uh, security of that country, the stability, uh, has a, a direct relationship or maybe indirect relationship with the security of our homeland, moving to a strategy which would maybe be called in military terms a rating strategy. So uh, we put special forces into a country uh, we conduct operations and uh, try to keep the uh, threat off balance or deal with it. We try our best to build elite local security forces, not big national armies, which are going to fail because of problems with corruption and misalignment of our interest uh, with their own. So that's the uh, strategy that uh, we're following. We, we saw that strategy uh, in the headlines here recently with Niger. I don't think at the end of the day that will uh, prove to be a very satisfactory uh, uh, response either because it, it doesn't, at the end of the day, doesn't get to the politics behind the application of force and the diplomacy. It's not, it, it's tactical, but what's the strategic outcome that you're uh, hoping for? Please. I'm Asfandiar Mir, uh, pre-doc uh, fellow here at CSAC. Question for two people who've sort of gotten at some prescriptions. So, so Jim, you conclude your essay with a, with a rather provocative session, uh, assertion, which is basically pull out from these regions. You know, uh, is is what I'm hearing. Uh, you know, you can't solve these these dilemmas. Uh, sort of similar to the idea of autonomous recovery argued many years ago by Jeremy Weinstein and. But, but Steve, Steve Krasner, you've sort of stuck your guns to an idea you proposed in the earlier, early 2000s, which was the notion of shared sovereignty. Uh, so, so Jim, I'm wondering if you could speak more about your prescription, and Steve, if you could talk about where might the political capital for these you know, shared sovereignty type structures would come from in this age of populism. Thank you. Uh, um I don't recall say, saying it just that way, uh, although I, if I looked at it again, maybe I'd, I'd agree with you. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't say, you know, uniformly blanket, uh, get out entirely and do nothing there. But I do think that, you know, for all the criticism the Obama administration got for uh, not engaging on the, the, to support the opposition in Syria, uh, that he was correctly estimating both um, the American public's willingness to willingness to do state building, which is what it would have taken to really, you know, try to put the opposition. We could have, you know, deposed the Assad regime and put the opposition in power, but I think they correctly saw that that would have led to a very similar set of problems that. Uh, uh, we saw in Iraq, and it, it, we, we just were not willing, and it's not clear that it's in 
U.S. N national interest to to spend that kind of uh, um, money, lives, and um, all kinds of other costs uh, for that purpose. So I wouldn't say it uniformly, but I do think that I mean that's some. I think that we have learned lessons in the last 15 years and uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan and. Uh, among other places, uh, perhaps should have been learned earlier from stuff that was going on in the 1990s. But yeah, I am pessimistic about a heavy footprint and and uh, heavy state building efforts in this region for the U.S. And I do think that leads to more of a defensive posture for for us. Yeah. Steve. Yeah. So let me. I, I published this shared sovereignty argument in 2005, and I gave a, a few presentations before the summer fellows and CDDRL. People hate this idea, right? They see it as being patronizing in neocolonialism. So at a very least, you'd have to have some kind of alternative label for it. But I think that, I think that a, a, a more, so here's a, I mean, a specific example, which is Sisic in Guatemala. So this is an agreement between the Guatemalan government and uh, not the Security Council, but the UN to have an investigative unit in Guatemala. They actually forced the president to resign, so they've been pretty effective. However, the Hondurans have looked at the, I mean, the president, who's now in jail, said the biggest mistake I ever made was renewing Sisic. And the Hondurans are looking at this and saying, there's no way we're going to allow this to happen. It actually worked. We're not going to, you know, it can work only once. So I do think an idea, something that really w will require, and I hope will be my next research project, and it's really an idea I got from Frank, Think about islands of excellence. You know, can we say now islands of excellence can either wither and die when external funding was withdrawn, they can remain islands, or they might actually diffuse to the polity as a whole. We have no good understanding of, of under what conditions or whether there are certain kinds of initiatives that might actually be more productive than others. You know, I, I think independent central banks actually work pretty well because they can be separated from the rest of the government. Um, and then not too much of a threat to leaders, but I'm actually not sure. So I think that's something, but it's very different than saying, you know, it, it's saying we're, we're going to plant some seeds. Um, we should try and find out which, which of these seeds will actually sprout. Um, but we shouldn't have expectations that, you know, we're, you know any one of these is going to put countries on the path to Denmark, which I'm deeply skeptical of. So um, <clears throat> we are at about the uh, end of our time. And what I'd like to do is a prerogative of the uh, chair here, a question for Michelle and for you, Paul. And so we have, we have these very fragile countries. Let's take a Democratic Republic of the Congo. So uh, is there anything that can be done now by the international community in the Democratic Republic of the Congo as an example or do we just have to wait for the disaster to occur? And, and then what would be the set of contingency plans that should be developed to deal with West Africa, Ebola outbreak countries at civil war, or DRC, Ebola outbreak country in civil war? <clears throat> well, one of the things that I, I think was pretty remarkable that the Obama administration did was the Global Health Security Act, which actually <clears throat> allows first world countries to partner with uh, fragile states and help strengthen their surveillance systems. Um, I think what's really been remarkable with this yellow fever, or actually 
the Ebola outbreak in the um, DRC is that you did not see huge spillover like you saw in uh, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia. That was very well controlled quickly. They have good partnerships. Um, there is good surveillance going on now um, through the, GA, the Global Health Security Act. Unfortunately, that ends in 2018, um, and we're not quite sure what the next administration. The National Academy of Science has put together a task force, um, which I'm actually part of, um, that are gonna try to say, what's the next iteration? Um, can we have another iteration of uh, GHSA? Paul. I, I would say there are two things. One is to recognize that each technical intervention places its own special burden on governance. That the requirements of immunization on governance are very different than the requirements of maternal mortality reduction. That is a far more complicated thing. So there is the potential to put in place those, or to work on those components of governance that are strategic to the control of pandemics and pandemic, pandemic spread. That there is such a thing as strategic governance that you don't have to wait until Eastern Congo becomes Denmark, but there may be arenas of governance that uh, may actually function that can address the risk of pandemic. It's interesting to note that the country in the world that had the best record of reducing young child mortality in the last 20 years was Liberia but yet it failed catastrophically in trying to handle Ebola. The second uh, issue is to recognize that the control of pandemics is really about the exercise of power, legitimate, legitimacy and power. And the health people tend to look at a place like the Eastern Congo and think of it as ungoverned space, like there's, there's no government. That is wrong. It's intensely governed. It's just not governed by the sovereign nation, by the national government, but there are local governance capabilities that are always operating in these areas. In fact, when you look carefully, what happened to finally control things in West Africa with Ebola, it were local chiefs and local community organization themselves, not the global, uh, global health response, although that was, of course, important, but it was local governance, local power um, that really got things mobilized to reduce uh, the Ebola spread in that area. And so therefore, this notion of strategic governance in response to technical capabilities uh, at the same time as looking for local governance and building on local capacity and local uh, players as opposed to just thinking about who's running WHO may also be very helpful. Thanks, Paul. Well, let me uh, let me wrap up then, if I could. First of all, back to uh, Steve's point, this uh, that excellent question about uh, shared sovereignty in volume two or issue two of Daedalus, the winter volume. There's two essays uh, that are particularly relevant, and one is by Thomas Rissa and Eric uh, Stallenwerk, "Limited Statehood." does not equal civil war, where they talk about this idea of islands of excellence. There's another very interesting essay written by our Ethiopian contributors, uh, Seo Mesfin and Abdeta Bayan, The Practicality of Living with Failed States, where they talk about the strategy of creating buffer zones 
and within those buffer zones, then islands of excellence. Fascinating essay because they're very frank that on the one hand, this is a practical solution. On the other hand, when we talk about international norms, it's violating Westphalian sovereignty, so tension that's there. Um, I'd like to give uh, two thanks here first. Uh, first to the Academy, Jonathan, for your uh, leadership and your support. Francesca, where's Judith and Judith? Uh, thank all of you. I'd like to give a round of uh, applause for the Academy. And then uh, also, I'd, I'd like to thank my co-panelists. I think you can see through this 90-minute discussion why I enjoy my time here at Stanford University every day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.